Hi, I'm Amy Porter, and this is my podcast. My mission is to show people how to empower themselves through music, business, and media. I try to see as clearly as possible how I can help. I showcase the music that I've played and the people I've met along the way. I'm a wife and a stepmom. You might know me as a professor, a performer, a producer, a publisher, a recording artist. I'm the founder of a couple of nonprofits. Welcome in to my Porter Flute Pod. Welcome to Porter Flute Pod. It's season three, episode 10, and we come bearing a rose. Etude, that is. It's our Etude edition. Cyril Rose Etudes for Clarinet are discussed today since I've recently recorded them all from my edition published by Carl Fisher. And we'll be looking into them more creatively with my two colleagues from the University of Michigan School of Music, Theater, and Dance, Professors Chad Burrow and Dan Gilbert. In the podcast with me asking questions is Alan J. Tomasetti, and keeping us on track is Justine Sedke. I'll feature a sneak peek in the podcast of four of the etudes I've recorded, as requested by Chad and Dan. Dan asked for number three, and Chad asked for number four and number 23. And here to begin the podcast is etude number one. Thanks to Jordan Smith for helping produce A Winter's Rose. It's my gift to you all, the 32 roses, out on YouTube, December 1 through January 1. Come on into Porter Flute Pod. We're so glad you're here. The 32 etudes by Cyril Rose are to clarinetists what the 26 selected studies of Joseph-Henri Altez are to flutists. They're an indispensable method of wind playing for musicians to learn phrasing, to incorporate implied harmonic contrasts in solo playing, and to understand the finesse and control of the airstream. They are based largely on the 48 etudes for oboe, Opus 31, by Franz Wilhelm Fairling. Rose transcribed them idiomatically for clarinet, keeping the spirit of Fairling's etudes, but occasionally altered the key, melody, the articulation, and phrase markings to fit the student clarinetist. Flutist Henri Altez and clarinetist Cyril Rose were colleagues as teachers at the Paris Conservatoire, as well as alumni. Altez received first prize in 1841, under the tutelage of Toulou, another flutist composer. And Rose won first prize in 1847 under the tutelage of Closet. Their etudes were major influences on the birth and development of the then modern boom system flute and the boom system inspired buffet clarinet. Altez wrote his complete method for flute that include the 26 etudes as well as composed a helpful duet part for the flute teacher. For clarinetists, Rose left it to the performer to interpret the accompaniment, and a few composers have done that in modern times by producing arrangements for clarinet and piano and for clarinet duo. From the time they were written to the present day, clarinetists around the world have held these studies in high regard. They were taught 
during a time when music was transforming the world through opera, orchestra, and ballet, and Rose was inspired to train the student for the orchestral working environment of the time. They're written in the order of major and minor keys, and the etudes are designed to help the performer master the inherent technical issues in each key, demanding the proper intonation, phrasing, and attention to musical detail and gestures. Moreover, each key features an etude in slow and fast tempo. However, there's very few markings to guide the student in the style in which they should be played. So it's advised not to play them before the student is ready to play with musicality and skill. Clarinetist Chad Burrow has a multifaceted career as an educator, solo artist, chamber musician, and orchestral musician. The European press has said that Chad performs with, quote, brilliant technique and tonal beauty mixed with an expressive ferocity, end quote. I could not agree more. In 2009, Chad Burrow was appointed to the clarinet faculty at the University of Michigan. He teaches clarinet and chamber music and He serves as co-artistic director for the Bright Music Society of Oklahoma, and he's on the faculty of the Swanee Summer Music Festival and Alpen Kammer Music Festival in Austria. He's also principal clarinetist with the Ann Arbor Symphony and regularly performs with the Detroit Symphony and the Michigan Opera Theater Orchestra. Dan Gilbert joined the clarinet faculty at the University of Michigan as associate professor of clarinet in 2007. Previously, he held the position of second clarinetist in the Cleveland Orchestra from 1995 to 2007. He's taught at Stony Brook, uh, State University of New York at Stony Brook, and he's served as the associate professor of clarinet at the Oberlin Conservatory from 2000 to 2001. A native of New York City, Dan Gilbert received a BA from Yale University and both a Master's of Music and a professional study certificate from the Juilliard School. And that's when I met Dan. Before joining the Cleveland Orchestra, Dan Gilbert was active as a freelancer in New York City, kind of like we all were. He was appearing regularly with the Metropolitan Opera, the American Ballet Theater, New Jersey Symphony, Stanford Symphony, New Haven Symphony, where he played principal clarinet from 1992 to 1995. Now he's an active chamber musician, playing regularly on the City Music Cleveland Orchestra Chamber Music Series, the Cleveland Museum of Art Chamber Music Series, and the Oberlin Chamber Music Series. Please welcome Dan Gilbert and Chad Burrow. Dan Gilbert, Chad Burrow, my dear friends, welcome to Porter Flute Pod. Thank you. It's such a pleasure to be here with you. Dan, I've known you since Juilliard, and it has been the clarinet sound that I've been used to, and I want to know about the the lineage for both of you with etudes and who you studied with. So who was your teacher, and did they demand etudes? So, yes, my teacher at Juilliard was named David Weber, and the lineage back to um, Rose, Cyril Rose, from David Weber was quite direct. And um, so through that connection, um, I was taught a very thorough scientific approach to the clarinet. 
And in that was in the integral uh, component of that was the study of the Rose studies. The 32 studies, uh, the 40, the 20 grand are all um, part of a very comprehensive study of, you know, control, sensitivity, musicianship, articulation. Um, it's in the spirit of, of, of the musician's musician, if that makes sense. I'll, I'll step back a generation. So Daniel Bonad um, came to America um, in the early part of the 1900s to play in the Philadelphia Orchestra. And with that, he brought the tradition of the French school of clarinet playing. His teacher had been Henry Lefebvre and Lefebvre studied with Rose and Rose studied with Closet. And so that whole lineage of, of scientifically taking apart the different elements of clarinet playing and then putting them back together again to, to build a full whole musician um, traveled directly down to David Weber through Bonad and that school of playing that he brought to America. So Weber's approach was, was very thorough in starting with a, a, a complete warm-up of um, long tones, uh, all 24 scales, then key area work. So dissecting each key area on its own with several other books. And then of course, etudes, the rose being um, a huge part of my studies. Uh, then among others, Mr. Weber used to go to Paris and, and shuffle through all the different books at the stores and pick out different books by Hamlin and um, Jean-Jean and all the different French clarinetists and bring them back to America and then give them to us. And so we, were, we always had our finger in the French tradition. So the Philadelphia Orchestra is part of my DNA, Kincaid being my grand teacher. And then we have Tabuteau sitting there, right? So we have a lot of great um, wind playing there from Philadelphia that has a direct lineage to France. I think, uh, you know, Bonad and Tabito were, um, were colleagues. And I think they spent a lot of time talking about how to pass on um, teaching the instrument to the next generation. And uh, Tabito and uh, I think Bonad had been a part of it as well, developed a whole series of numbers to talk about, um, you know, phrasing by the numbers. And that definitely was passed on to me. And, um, and in, in the Rose studies, um, one of my teachers who studied with Bonad, another teacher, uh, Richard Waller, who played principal of Cincinnati Symphony, had us um, a whole numbering system. So I have all my numbers like seven, eight, four, three, as I move through a phrase. So it's like kind of painting by the numbers, phrasing by the numbers is another less gestalt, more scientific approach to phrasing. I learned the numbers, but only in my young adult professional career. So I decided to number my solo from Brahms 4. I decided to number Prelude to the Afternoon of a Fawn. I numbered every excerpt because I was fascinated. Daphnis and Chloe has numbers all over it. I found it really amazing. It's it's not about dynamics. It's about energy. It's about, you know, color and inflection and intensity of, of tone. So I'm all about that. I'd be really interested in um, Chad's lineage. Um, I know um, your teacher, Chad. Um, I'm interested how he used the Rose studies as well. Sure. Um, I really had sort of three major teachers in my life, um, two of whom had been students of Robert Marcellus. And I know, Dan, you had also uh, worked with Marcellus as well. Um, but, but my two major influences were students of Marcellus, who was a student of Bonad, tracing back that same lineage. And the other teacher I had during my undergraduate years, Russ Dagan, 
um, was a colleague at Northwestern with Marcellus for um, more than a, a decade or two. And so that sort of tradition that comes from Philadelphia and before that French tradition was always a big part of what, what I've done with, with etude work. I remember in high school going through the Rose Etude systematically week after week, uh, working on key areas uh, with the etudes and the scales, and my teacher just insisting that the etudes were part of where we learned how to phrase and sing through the instrument and get beyond just the mechanics. Um, so I feel that they were, were paramount uh, in my own personal development. And I will say it, it took me a while to come around to those etudes because my first teacher, Shannon Scott, um, she was big on the etudes. And I wasn't quite so excited at first. Um, and then I would always notice that she could pick up the clarinet and play the etudes, like, for my ears at the time, just flawlessly. And it's like, wow. And I made the comment once. I said, it seems like you played a lot of etudes in your life. And she looked at me and said, absolutely. I played them more than anything else. <laughs> so it became something that I, I wanted to sound like that. I wanted to have that, that fluency with the instrument and with music and to not have these sort of musical or technical limitations. So etudes became a big part of that. And then Russ Dagan extended that. I went through most of the other Rose etudes, Perrier, French etudes, um, some of the Jean Jean, and some of the German etudes as well that maybe are, are less common in, in certain schools of playing, uh, Yedl and Behrman and so on. They might be antiquated, but we still have all the key signatures. They still stay the same. <laughs> we still have these instruments we have to be dexterous on. So why do you think they've stood the test of time? Do you think purely because we're learning key signatures and phrasing? Perhaps not. They have a little something more. You know, as a teacher, 
and I know Chad and I talk about this all the time, we want to give our students the, the ability to transcend the instrument to go right to the music. So I think what's very special about these etudes is that in it, in uh, all 32 of them, and, and what's interesting is that he, he did take these from the Fairling studies, uh, most of them. I think all, 31 of the 32 are from the Fairling studies. And he transposed them and he edited them. He even composed sections. He added some Bach in the middle of um, one of them. So he, he definitely did a lot of thinking about how to best suit these etudes that obviously were working very well for the oboe to the clarinet. And so I think what, what is really special about them for us is that they sit incredibly well on the instrument. And then they also challenge us, again, as I mentioned earlier, to certain things which are, are of paramount importance, uh, which in our school of playing, which are the ability to have controlled articulation, controlled connection between notes, shaping the line, learning, really having a, a, a musical sensitivity. Um, you know, there's an old adage that you can't teach somebody how to be a musician. It has to be innate. But um, these etudes, when they're studied you know, properly, really open doors for somebody to gain insight into how to phrase. And I think that, you know, there are many other books, as Chad mentioned, that we use as, as students and as teachers. But these have withstood the test of time just because of that. But I also will say there is the element of the lineage. You know, Rose passed it on to Lefebvre, Lefebvre passed it on to Bonad, Bonad passed it on to most of America. And I think that that stands. I think that we it's a go-to book for developing uh, a developing young player. They've definitely become popular on multiple instruments. And so it's important to celebrate the fact that they came from Fairling and the oboe. Now, the flute and the oboe, we share kind of a, a freedom of uh, having small keys and just a light approach. We don't have, I consider the clarinet somewhat heavier. It's, you have a, a bigger bore than we do. We seem to be able to fly. For instance, you might start hearing my rose etudes and think, well, that's rather fast or they can do that so easily, but it's going to be for the flute. It is the transcription that I did. It's for the flute. It's up octaves. It's, it's of course, you know, I had to put an up an octave because your registers go so low. So from multiple instruments, it's just been incredible. Are there more than just the clarinet and the oboe and now the flute? Are there more people playing the Fairling slash Rose etudes? Well, early on, Marcel Mule, um, famous saxophone teacher, um, took the, the Fairling studies and used them as well. He didn't have to transpose them because um, they read the same register as the uh, oboe. So, I mean, they've become, they've become very important in, um, uh, in saxophone pedagogy as well. So I'd be really interested in, um, in uh, I haven't heard you performing your, the Rose studies. I'd be really interested to hear you play them. So I'm going to have to go check that out. Well, they're in the vault right now. They'll premiere December 1st. And here's a disclaimer. It's on the flute. It's in a different register. It's going to be a different etude for different purposes. So. I think that's, that's great that, you know, it should be different. Uh, the flute is not the clarinet and the oboe is not, not the clarinet and so on. So, um, yeah, I think the, with any transcription, what is wonderful is sometimes the new colors, the new sounds, maybe as you described, even new tempi, um, 
that, that can be achieved just uh, by virtue of changing the instrument. So I think that's that's a great part of it. And frankly, clarinetists can listen to your playing on the flute and say, wow, I need to develop that fluidity. Why can't I do that on the clarinet necessarily? So, you know, I think we can all learn from each other in that way. Um, and I think that's what's really great about coming together as wind players and having discussions and classes and things together because we all have unique perspectives from our instrument um, that we can all learn from. I think, um, you know, one of the first questions that I ask any new student that comes to work with me is, have you done the Rose 32 studies? And, you know, it's a loaded question because if they say, oh yeah, I've done them, I always say, well, we're going to do them again. And if they haven't done them, I'm like, well, we're going to do them. <laughs> so it's, it's always part of the, the routine. I come back to them quite often myself. You know, it's a great home base and it brings back a lot of memories of my time with my teachers. Um, one thing I do with um, with the students is there you know, there have been many editions of the Rose 32 studies. Every virtually everybody has done an edition with their own markings and whatnot. Um, I um, I like to go with my more advanced students to um, the the idea of making a print, um, printing up a copy of an etude, whiting out all the markings, all the dynamics, all the hairpins, and then making another copy so they've got a blank one, and then doing a critical edition or an addition of their own. That way they learn why, you know, and, and, and their own system for markings. It doesn't have to be, you know, the traditional one. And I've come up with, the students have come up with some really interesting ideas. I love that. That's fantastic. When do you assign these etudes to your students? And like when in their musical growth would you recommend approaching the etudes and why? Dan, you said, much like I would say about Carr Gaylor, have you played them? If you haven't, we're going to do it. If you've already done it, here's here's my study guide. You're going to do them again. So when do you assign them? Chad, do you want to take that one? Sure. So I think most uh, good high school students, uh, maybe even some junior high students, can start picking a, an etude here and there or having some of the, the simpler ones uh, assigned. But certainly by ninth or 10th grade, for someone who's a little more serious about the clarinet, uh, they become uh, really important learning tools. Um, but frankly, it's when the students are older that I think we get the most um, use from the etudes because the students at that point are not just learning the notes and the basic technique. They're starting to polish. They're starting to be able to think more about the phrase. They're starting to be able to, to hear the evenness or unevenness of the sound across the registers. They're able to start to think more about color and about shape of, of, of long notes uh, and, and really defining their phrasing, sort of going from micro to macro phrasing. Um, so, Again, as, as Dan pointed out, the question is, have you done the Rose Etudes anytime we have a freshman coming in at U of M? And the, the result is, okay, now you're going to do them again, or, well, let's get started on these for the first time. Um, it's, it's so foundational to everything we do that uh, a person must really come to understand these Etudes well, I think, in order to play most of what we would say is in the sort of common tonal language, really from Bach into the early 20th century. Um, so there's so much here that even when I have graduate students uh, who are well beyond, in many ways, these etudes, we can still come back and say, I'm going to assign an etude or two 
to work on an aspect of your playing. So let's work on, you know, etude number four of the 32 to really fine-tune your articulation. Um, let's go to the first etude and let's think about phrase a little more. And then we can transfer those skills into the repertoire and other things that they're playing. Um, so as Dan articulated, I come back to them with older students. I come back to them myself um, because they're that foundational. In recording, even though I had the breaths marked and even though my addition allows the phrasing to have uh, flute player style breaths, I still didn't get a big enough breath when I was just looking at it. I, I, I think I have to write, no, really. <laughs> no, really. And I do by do two commas or two check marks means double breath, right? But what it means in the Rose 32 etudes is not only do you have your two bar phrase, you might even have the four bar phrase and another bar attached to it just to make it that much more moving. And as Dan said, give it that other quality of where the instrument disappears, you're playing this gorgeous line, but man, it takes air. So you also have the quick breaths, quick breaths, the medium breaths and the long breaths for me in recording became Oh, right. I have to remember that. And then I'd make it. But in a way, that was the most important aspect of the recording. I can nail the technique. I've practiced it. It was, you know, where to breathe. So I think in some of the quicker etudes, um, we have, generally speaking, because we're not losing so much of our air over the, 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 the tone hole of the flute, the, the, the breathing is not as challenging in some ways. We, we can maybe make those longer phrases, but the difficulty is in deciding where to breathe in those faster etudes. Um, and there it's about the timing of the breath. One of the things I'll often have students do is actually practice breathing in even uncomfortable places to try to make even those odd phrasing choices, let's say, make musical sense. And then they can go back and, and do the more regular phrasing and take the time needed to make the breath sound natural and a part of the phrase. Um, so in that sense is, is one way I, I have students practice. Uh, another thing that I think is often missing, just despite the fact we're wind players, I don't think a lot of wind teachers spend enough time talking about how we use the wind and, and breath uh, really well. There's sort of a basic conception and maybe even some wrong-headed thinking of the physiology involved in breathing, but to actually use these etudes to really explore how we breathe and how we sustain a phrase, I think is, is, is so important. Yeah, I think what is implicit in, in a lot of these etudes, especially the, the fast ones, is a rapid tempo. So when, and uh, the way that I teach is fast comes from slow and soft comes from loud. And so I have them practice these etudes, the fast ones, slowly and forte. So they are depleting themselves of air a lot more quickly than they will in, in the final product. So they'll add in breaths in places in the middle of a phrase to get a really good breath. They practice breathing, even in the wrong place, they practice the breath and a nice fat big juicy tone as they work their way through. And then as they become more comfortable with the notes, then they speed it up and also start to do more of the dynamic contrast. And then the breathing becomes a little bit easier. 
I also have them practice in sections. So practice from the beginning to their first breath and be able to do that really comfortably. And then stop, take a really great breath and practice going from that breath to the next breath again, really solidly. And so uh, just like when you're memorizing a piece, you, you know, take a chunk and own that chunk and then take another chunk, own that, and then put those two chunks together. I think that's a really great way to, of, um, you know, uh, overcoming some of the um, issues of breathing in these etudes. I'm looking straight at number 18. It's just, it was a beast to command all that technique and just have the sailing effortless air. So a lot of them are like that. Number 10, um, I just recently had to record for a project and, um, you know, to play it flawlessly in one take with all the breaths that one needs to take um, is, is, can be difficult because of the oxygen depletion by the end of a phrase. And then that's where some of the hardest technique is. So yeah, I agree. What etude books do you also use in conjunction with Rose that might teach other aspects of music making? So um, it's interesting. I had a, an experience a few years ago of going to Italy and, and doing some concerts and uh, talking to some teachers in Italy. And of the, those that I spoke with, uh, they actually don't teach the Rose etudes. In fact, they almost were laughing how much that we rely on those because in their school, in their tradition, they have a whole lineage of incredible etudes by Italian composers. And uh, I've always incorporated some of those into my own teaching, and I think those can be just as important in different ways. Um, still within the sort of 19th century, 18th century tonality, uh, Cavallini etudes are really important, Labanchi etudes. And then moving into the, the sort of more 20th century language, um, which of course is very varied, I know that's a, a broad statement, um, doing things like Perrier etudes that take the technique to another level or two or three uh, than the Rose etudes. Uh, etudes by Yettel and Uhl start to incorporate mid-German, uh, mid-20th century Germanic language, things that you would find in, in composers like Hindemith and and others. Uh, there, there are so many uh, different studies that we can use, um, and I feel that most of those uh, may not be studied in their entirety, like the Rose, but certainly we, we pull heavily from those other traditions and other etude books. Um, and I'll mention just recently, Kalman Opperman has a number of velocity studies and modern daily studies that I find particularly helpful in dealing with some of the more um, challenging uh, technical things that we do on the instrument. Yeah, I absolutely agree with Chad. The books that he mentioned are what we use them in our teaching at Michigan. Um, and, you know, 
I think the row studies have a place and they are very comprehensive, but definitely for um, 17th and 18th and well, 18th and 19th century music, when we get into the 20th century, um, there are, there are tech, technical challenges that are not included in the Rose studies, but there's still a very comprehensive basis for gaining control of the important aspects of the instrument. I think my last question would be, if I were to preview some Rose etudes on this podcast, what would be your favorite Rose etudes and which one would you most like to hear first in a preview? Dan? Slow, uh, A minor. Uh, I just, I think that has so much, um, first of all, uh, it's challenging, musically challenging. And I think there's a lot of soul in that one. If there is, if there is one shortcoming of, um, of these etudes is sometimes I find them not to be incredibly musically deep. You know, the ideas are there for you to use in, in other in other pieces like Weber and you know Mozart and, and others, but I find that sometimes the musicianship can be a hair trite. Um, uh, that being said, you know I think a number three is um, you know one of the ones that I really enjoy playing and come back to. Got it, Chad. So I'm going to pick two etudes, and it's because of this sort of existential relationship I have with them. Uh, number four, I think I already mentioned it once. Uh, number four is where I learned really how to articulate. Uh, Russ Dagan was working with, with me on this A2, trying to get a consistent, even articulation, a good crystal clear staccato. And my big aha moment happened as an undergraduate student with that A2. And um, the other one would be uh, number 23. Uh, number 23 is... One that, again, I feel like I learned so much about how to make music and phrase uh, and sing. It's an E-flat major, and it opens with just, you know, dee-da-dee-da-dee-da, then an arpeggio scale and an arpeggio. It's like, okay, how do I make this beautiful? How do I sing on this? And then it moves into this this. Uh, after the opening two lines, it moves into a section with a lot of 30 seconds that it's really easy to sound sort of frantic and frenzied, but has to con continue in this cantabile, very singing style. And so for me, I remember thinking, okay, this is where I'm learning how to phrase. This is where I'm learning how to sing on the instrument. Um, and that was in high school, actually, when I, I remember having that sort of moment. And if it tells you anything, there are a lot of beautiful slow etudes before that. So it took me until etude number 23 to feel like I was starting to sing on the instrument. But those are two, two etudes I've always loved. I'm looking at number 23. He, he makes it adagio after those first two lines. So it's clearly an eight. Yeah. And once you celebrate playing an eight, which is hard for, for a 20 year old, mm -hmm. like myself back in college, when I knew Dan at Juilliard, I was not happy with playing an eight. I was really horrible at playing duets with my teacher who insisted on the second movement of cool out duets in eight or six or 12. It was awful. So this etude, you're right. It makes you play the 30 seconds in a melodic way, not just speed.
it has been my pleasure to have you on to discuss these important etudes. And etudes are important anyway. So everyone's going to run off and, and, and find the rose etudes, I'm sure. Go practice. <laughs> go practice. Go blue. Thank you for being on Porter Flute Pod. Amy, I can't wait to hear your, um, your etudes. I'm very excited. Yeah, looking forward to that. It's been an insightful episode spent with my clarinetist colleagues, performer teachers at the University of Michigan School of Music, Theater, and Dance. You can find more information about the program at music.umich.edu. Join us next week for Business 101. We're talking about forming a nonprofit or two. I'll discuss what I went through and with whom to bring two nonprofit flute clubs to life the Atlanta Flute Club and the Southeast Michigan Flute Association. You can find more about me at amyporter.com or porterflute.com. On YouTube, Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, I'm Porter Flute. Thanks for joining us. I'm so grateful for you.